Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I actually have a young brother who's doing great work, man, who um, is one of the best mayors we have in the entire country. And I say that with no hesitation. None other than the mayor of the great city of Baltimore, Maryland. I hope I, Maryland said it right. Brandon Scott. What's going on, my brother? How are you? It's good, brother. Always good to see you. Good to be here. And it's, it's Baltimore, Maryland is how we say it here in ba- Baltimore. Baltimore, 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 Maryland, yeah. Baltimore, Maryland. There we go. I'm going to get it down. Uh, you know, we start each one of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you're a career public servant. Talk to us through your career stop, starting with my friend uh, Stephanie Rawlings Blake when she was on the Baltimore City Council, to your career on the Baltimore City Council, and now as mayor of Baltimore. Why public service, and why did you choose to run for mayor back in 2020? Well, just to be up front, Bakari, uh, this is what I was born to do. And uh, Baltimore is the reason why I chose public service. So I grew up in the Park Heights section of Baltimore City in Northwest in Northwest Baltimore. Uh, most people know that is the place where every third Saturday in May, there's this horse race known as Preakness, right? So imagine uh, growing up in a neighborhood where your neighborhood is the center of the sports world for one Saturday a year and every other day of the year, you're not even seen as human. Uh, That's what it was like for me. So when you grow up like that, when you uh, lose friends to violence, the first time I saw someone shot, I wasn't even 10 years old. Uh, That changes you and it forces you to make a decision on whether you're going to wait for someone else to change it or you can be a part of that change. And for me, that's what I always wanted to do. And actually, it's funny as you you, you bring up uh, uh, my sister, uh, our friend SRB, uh, it was because I always knew I wanted to do this. But the the lightning rod was when she became a council president, people in the neighborhood actually told me to, because I lived in her old district at that time, to go for the council seat. I did. I didn't get it. Our current council vice president got it, but they brought me on as a staff person. So I always say that I forced my way into the door. uh, But those years as a staffer uh, from the time being, being a staffer in the council president's office and then the mayor's office allowed me to start when I ran for council at 27, 2011 with so much experience that you just cannot replace. And I decided to run for mayor actually well before 2020, uh, probably in, in January of 2017, uh, just because I thought it was time for the city's leadership to change over to the next generation, to be able to understand everything about Baltimore from the ground up. And it was just time for us to pass the torch and the city was ready for it. It wasn't ready in 2016 when many people wanted me to run for mayor and I wasn't ready. I had to do some personal growing as well. I mean, that's impressive. And that, that type of introspection is necessary, particularly in politics. And, you know, you, t- you touched on something for many people who may not know much about Baltimore or their understanding of Baltimore is simply the wire. Talk about Baltimore that most folks do not know. Um, oh, and while we're at it, talk about the challenges that you face as mayor and talk about the opportunities you see as mayor as well. Yeah, I think that when we, we, many people see Baltimore for the wire or, you know, homicide, life on the street or the corner or whatever show. And they don't know all the things about uh, this great city or as we call it, the greatest city in America. Right. And yes, Baltimore has its challenges. And yes, I'm the first mayor to understand those challenges because I had to duck the bullets. I had to go to school to know heat and air and all of these things. And uh, really the the opportunities that we have here are limitless because of where we sit 
in the country, in the region that we are in, uh, that we have the vibrant city that we have when you have the institutions that we have here, but also the history, Bacard. When you think about that, right, the NAACP, the history that it has here in Baltimore, right, we're the city that gave everyone Thurgood Marshall, we're the city that gave everyone Perrin Mitchell. We like all, we also know as the city of first because all you cannot tell the history of this country, right? without telling the history of Baltimore, even if you're talking about something as simple as the Star Spangled Banner. But what we're talking about now is helping Baltimore be the best version of itself, because for all that great history and all the issues that we face today, we also have to acknowledge that those, those issues come from our dark history that we don't like to talk about, that we're the birthplace of redlining legislation, right? That's why we have the issues that we have. And what we're talking about now, and on my one-year anniversary, I released my action plan, uh, which is how we're going to work each and every day, and so that the residents of Baltimore can see that and hold us accountable to make us the best city possible. And I imagine a city complete with affordable housing, sustainable and equitable development, con connections to our water and green spaces, one where we're investing in the communities that have been ignored for far too long, like the one I grew up in, and in Baltimore that's more diverse. Uh, we are growing in our brand community, and that vision that we have is broken down of a car in five pillars, and that's building public safety in Baltimore, and that means that if this is no longer going to be as long as I'm here, a, a city that thinks that public safety is only for the police department. Every single agency plays a part in that. Prioritizing our youth, building clean and healthy communities, equitable neighborhood development, and responsible stewardship of city resources. And I think uh, when you have the opportunity that we have now with a federal government who is investing in cities with the American Rescue Plan, obviously also with the Infrastructure Act, we can go a long way. And we've made a lot of investments already. Uh, we gave a $50 million investment for violence prevention efforts in Baltimore, including growing our community violence intervention programs from 10 to 30, uh, re-entry, youth justice, uh, victim and trauma and trauma and community healing. Uh, we're doing 80 million to continue to battle with COVID-19. Uh, we did a $30 million investment into workforce training to include our young people, right? Folks who are re-entering into, into our community, getting them trained. Uh, we have this program called uh, a train up where we're training people to get them into better careers that are available here in Baltimore, like the tech sector, obviously the medical sector that are here. And the last thing uh, to, to, to jumpstart, we have a $25 million investment to establish an economic recovery fund for our local and small businesses that we uh, will focus on our women, minority, and, and owned businesses here in the city. And uh, something I think that is important to note, as we all felt the reality of this become even more true during COVID, is that we did a $35 million investment to uh, as our groundwork to end the digital divide here in Baltimore, where we're going to be expanding our fiber network to local rec centers and providing public web, uh, Wi-Fi across West Baltimore. I mean, that's robust. I mean, one of the things that people can't say about you is if you don't have a vision. You know, I, I hate people who are elected officials or running for office who, you know, can't talk to themselves. I have a vision out of a wet paper bag. But you have that vision, which is important. Let me ask you this, though. Before there was uh, before there was a George Floyd, there was Freddie Gray. Um, and uh, you were on city council at that time and you saw Baltimore go through the Freddie Gray tragedy. How have you seen policing in Baltimore evolve and what were the lessons learned as a city, you think, around Freddie Gray and how did events around Freddie Gray affect you personally? 
I'll start with the last part, man. I remember Bakari. I think this for people outside of Baltimore, uh, that few days is where they met me, right? And at the time, let's see, you know, I had I was thirty one years old at, at the time, and I think um, for me, it affected me in a very deep way, right? It affected me because at the time, I also was co-leading the the largest uh, uh, anti-violence movement in the city. Three hundred men marched with me. And, and 30, it started with 300, but ended up being 30 of my, my closest brothers and friends would be in communities like Penn North where, where the Freddie Gray uh, uh, uprising kicked off every week to, get, to convince our brothers and sisters to stop killing each other. Our hashtag was, we must stop killing each other. And the irony is, is that we were there exactly one week before on that corner. And we were there, you know, before the camera showed up that day and after when everyone else was gone. And it impacted me in a, in a very deep way because it's hard to see your city struggle like that. It's hard to see your city in trauma like that. Uh, but it also uh, pushed me for me to take my leadership to the next level and to go harder and to help in Baltimore evolve, right? Long before that incident happened, I was pushing for, for things uh, around police reform. I had already been in Annapolis and our general assembly pushing to open up internal affairs complaints to us to have early intervention systems. Actually, at that time, I was not, at that time, I was four years into my crusade to have the city police department become a city agency and not a state agency. And it, if it were not for everybody coalescing after Freddie Gray, we wouldn't be at a point now where we're actually going to take control of our police department. And then the council, we uh, decided that we should enter into a federal a consent decree for our police department, which has helped the department evolve in so many deep ways. And no, the department isn't perfect. Uh, I'm pressing them every day to be perfect. And we know nothing is perfect, but you strive for perfection. Let me let me let me let me ask you about that. You're a unique figure. You're a lot like myself um, in that. You don't want to abolish police. You want to have good police. You understand that our mama and grandmamas and aunts and uncles, they not out here talking about they when they die. Nine one one. No, they, they, they want the police. Right. They just want to make sure that the police aren't killing their babies. Right. So how do you how are you walking this line between what we understand to be progressive ideals that are valuable to cities, such as spending a lot of those resources on. Pre prevention and preemptive programs um, versus the need for policing during this COVID spike of violent crime. How do you balance that? Yeah, I think I think for me, Bakari, I think it's about being real and honest with people, right? And it's no disrespect to some folks who think they know, but if you didn't grow up where I grew up, if you, you know, and I'm open and honest about this, if you didn't grow up with people who are on the other side and you know how they think and you know... You don't know as much as I know, right? Like you don't understand if that gun has never been pointed in your face. And for me, even from the, the folks who say that we should just have all community doing that, right? I have to remind them, I did that personally. I tried it. I tried to get more and more men to come out. And we started the first time we had a 300 men march for Kari, We had like a thousand people and we ended up with 30. It's about being real with folks and being honest. And yes, we have to change the way that policing works. And this is someone who I am committed to making sure that we responsibly reallocate money to other things. For example, uh, we are right now running a 911 
uh, call diversion program where we're taking calls away from police and giving them to uh, mental health substance abuse folks as we should. And the irony of that for me in that conversation is that two things. One, that's actually required by a police consent decree. Right. And two, that the first public discussion I had about doing that was ironically with a police major who was the major that just happens to uh, East in East Baltimore that has Johns Hopkins. And he said to me, because him, him and our friends play football together, he said, Brandon, this makes no sense. Man, you ain't playing no football, Brandon. But we're going to get back to that. Go ahead. Oh, the, the, well, see, I'll just let you know there's video or evidence of this. So don't don't look. <laughs> As my good, as my good brother, former former New York Jets and Buffalo Bills linebacker Aaron Maven about the skills, he'll tell you they they're legit. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. You can't, you can't, you can't hit what you can't catch. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, but, and what he said to me was like, this makes no sense. He says, why am I sending police out to deal with this behavioral health issue, and I'm the commander of that has Johns Hopkins Hospital system in it the number one medical institution in the world. Like we have to evolve our thinking, but that also doesn't mean that we're gonna, when someone, my grandmother, your grandmother, our aunties, our moms call 911 because someone is robbing someone that we don't need police. It's about having that balance, but more importantly, for elected leaders, and this is what I say and why uh, you know, my staff say, well, these people are gonna be mad at you. You know, they're gonna, people are gonna be mad at you. It's not about people being mad at me or liking me all the time. It's about doing the right thing over the popular one, even if that means we get unelected. That's what we have to do because we got into this position here in Baltimore and across the country because we had elected officials who would just do whatever they needed to do in three years to keep people happy to get elected, reelected in the fourth. And that's not what we need. We need balance, change, and reform, investing more in those programs that we're talking about, making sure that we're modernizing police so that we're not overspending there. You can do both. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. You know, one of the things that I will uh, say, and I, I'm going to use this as a descriptor, uh, is that your relationship with uh, Larry Hogan has been interesting. Um, I think that's the best way I can put it for the purposes of this show, um, where it's clear that Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, views uh, Baltimore, Maryland as a political football. Um, lots of mayors I know have this dynamic of a Republican governor that doesn't prioritize major cities and a Democratic mayor like you 
Can you talk about the unique challenges for governing that this relationship with your governor represents and how are you navigating it? Look, my, my job is to, Bakari, make work every day to make Baltimore be the best version of itself, right? Uh, and sometimes the games uh, that, that Governor Hogan and his folks like to play get in the way of that. Uh, and, and what I think what frustrates me is, is this, and look, I don't even know if I've ever told you this, right? I, I tell people all the time, I don't really care about political party. I'm the grandson of a Republican pig farmer from Halifax County, North Carolina. That doesn't matter to me. All I care about is, are you a person of your word? Are you a person that really cares? Are you really dedicated to doing the work for everybody? And what happens, and I've been engaging with Governor Hogan and his people on the ground on a regular basis. And I, what I tell them is what I tell everybody. When I agree with him, I'm going to tell him I agree. When I disagree, I'm going to tell him I disagree. I'm not going to get into these uh, media back and forth because, look, I'm from the hood, man. Like, you say something to another man first before you say it to someone else. And I think we're going to continue to push them. I have been able to have some success to getting them to come back to the table. For example, uh, the state used to run this criminal justice coordinating council because you hear folks talk about Baltimore and Baltimore's crime. Well, the only department uh, that deals with public safety in Baltimore that I control is the police department. Everything else is either another elected official, mainly him, between our jail, probation, all of that corrections, all of that stuff. And what, what it becomes down to is that you have to get people off these partisan talking points and be unafraid to challenge them. I think where some of my predecessors failed is that they didn't know how to uh, uh, respond and fight in the same way that he's fighting, right? You have to be honest, whether it's, for example, he was making comments about schools in Baltimore not having air conditions. And of course, a certain media outlet, you know wh which one I'm talking about, rushed to ask me, well, the governor says you guys are failing because the schools don't have air conditioning. And I just calmly looked at them and said, well, did you ask him why the state that approved their six-year plan didn't give them the money all in one year since state schools in Maryland are a, a state thing and not a local one. It's about just being upfront with people. He'll be gone in over a year. Uh, we'll be rejoicing probably for that here in Baltimore, but we're going to work to make sure that until that time, he's there. And I'm going to work with him, going to work with who comes behind him. But it's also important for us that we have the great and the best federal delegation in the country, which helps us out a lot. I'm going to get to that in a minute. One of the things I wanted to pick your brain on, though, is about equitable economic development, because with Under Armour and Johns Hopkins and the harbor and the port, you have lots of economic assets in Baltimore. Um, but lots of Baltimore residents haven't seen the economic benefits created uh, by these assets, and they haven't seen them change their lives or their neighborhoods. How do you reshape uh, how the benefits of economic development are reallocated as mayor in a way where you're investing in your people? Yeah, I think that this is this is a dirty little secret, right, that we talked about earlier. And when you think about uh, what I talked about, us being the birthplace of redlining, if you gave if I gave you a map of Baltimore back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and you saw that and that overlaid it with crime and disinvestment and things over the last several decades, they're the same. And what we're going to do is flip that on its head, right? And it's about, that's why we have our impact investment areas, seven of them, there are these areas that have been ignored. And when you think about how you build from that strength, for example, Bakari, if you would have told me 
a, a 25 or a 20 year old uh, Brandon Scott that uh, the neighborhood of Oliver, where they filmed the wire and the areas around Johns Hopkins, this neighborhood Johnson Square, where we, they will be selling houses for $200,000, $300,000 and that we'll be working, the city will be working with Johnson Square and build and rebuild Metro to now take people who were renters in this neighborhood, allowing them to become homeowners to keep them there. I would tell you, I got a bridge to sell you too, but that's exactly what we're doing, right? And that's how we're going to do it. We're going to be very intentional about investing in those areas, creating uh, programs and expanding programs for people like our seniors, like our grandparents to age in their home and pass that home on to other folks, having efforts to attract more middle-class Black folk into those neighborhoods and bring back people that left. And also we have to do that by allowing the people that are there now to be the best version of themselves. That's why that $5.2 million for uh, a transitions job program higher up, is going to be so big. That's why it's so important for us to train people up. That's why the investments that we have, there is no public school district, Pakari, over the last few years that have built or renovated more new schools than Baltimore, right? In fact, to our point earlier, the governor and some other folks like to talk about how Baltimore and schools, they don't do anything, et cetera. Well, now the state's entire capital schools project program is actually based on the model that we have here in Baltimore. Those things being intentional, how our capital dollars are going to be spent intentionally in those areas, focusing in those areas is how we will build a more economically developed city in an equitable way. And even our, our, our federally required plan is called Baltimore Together, a economic uh, uh, outreach for an equitable of prosperity. That's how we're operating here. Equity is not just a buzzword for us. It's how we're operating each and every day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You mentioned your federal delegation, which is a bad delegation. I mean, bad in terms of tough. I mean, they, they get it done up there um, in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, we recently saw the $1.2 trillion uh, transportation or infrastructure bill pass. A lot of the coverage we saw was about Joe Manchin and the horse race with Joe Manchin, et cetera. My question for you, though, is... Answer this. What does the infrastructure bill mean for your city and how do you plan to spend all that money that's coming to Baltimore? Well, look, man, this like many cities throughout the country, we know uh, 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 the basic stuff. Right. And our most redlining underfunded neighborhoods in Baltimore lack the basic amenities. Right. Good roads, good bridges, good schools, grocery stores, hospitals. And, and more importantly, jobs that pay livable wages, right? We all know that. But when you think about this bill, I talk about it as a lifetime opportunity for mayors and cities around the country to improve really access to economic opportunities and the vital resources for our residents. Uh, if we are building a new a new city and doing it in a way, imagine Bakari as we give out uh, uh, these infrastructure dollars to build Wi-Fi, to build better residences and schools and roads. If we're doing that and helping our minority women-owned businesses grow, helping people who are re-entering into society be able to work on these projects the same way, right? And I think about this in the traditional Baltimore. My uh, my uncles, my mom's parents moved here from the rural south because of those kind of opportunities, and that's what allowed me to be able to go off a of college 
college, right? And when we have things like that, this is an opportunity for us to expand it. But we also have things like our complete street strategy here in Baltimore that we're able to work with. We've been working with uh, uh, our, our federal delegation and our partners in, in the Federal Transportation Administration, our great partner in uh, Secretary Buttigieg, or as we call him, Mayor Secretary Buttigieg and the young elected official circles, right? To restore plans for our red line, a new subway line that we had a billion dollars uh, for when Governor Hogan took office that would have transformed Baltimore City and Baltimore County. And our governor gave that money back. What governor in the world would give back a billion dollars of free money to build a new subway line? We are looking to also use that funding uh, to tear down uh, what we call and I call the poster child uh, for uh, racial highways, right? And we call it the highway to no way he here, Bakari, because they were supposed to connect I-70 to I-95. They destroyed a, a middle-class Black Baltimore neighborhood in West Baltimore, and it never connected. It doesn't even connect. It's just a, it's literally just a hole in the ground and a little bit of a, a roadway. And we've been working with uh, our partners and our delegation and MDOT to secure uh, more funding for that. And we recently just announced with, announced with Secretary Buttigieg a $50 million in funding for East-West Transit Corridor. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what we'll be able to do with this bill because it's about building a better and more equitable Baltimore from the ground up. Listen, you've only been in for a year, but what would be three things that you want people to remember you for as mayor of Baltimore City in your hometown? Number one, uh, that I did my job with the utmost integrity, uh, integrity and dignity and respect for my city. And uh, number two, that I worked hard each and every day. And number three, that I was always honest, even when it was bad for me. Your Ravens, last question. What happened to them this year? How did they implode? Why did they implode? I mean, was it just Lamar was hurt? I mean, listen, if Lamar Jackson doesn't get hurt, we win the division. Let's be let's just be honest. The Bengals are the best team in the AFC North. I mean, they and they they, I, I, they I got the second best quarterback. I dis I did I dis I disagree with that. I know they got us twice this year, but you know, you know what they say about a dog in the sun. Uh when Lamar is healthy, and uh, we will be back. And I also will say when you think about our record right now, and we still have a slim, slim chance, but stranger things have happened. But when you think about our record and the fact that we lost our whole backfield and training camp, right? We, we lost our whole defensive secondary throughout the year. Most teams wouldn't have the chance to have a winning record there. And I think it talks about not just the greatness of Lamar, but the organization, a Coach Harbaugh, and all the things that we have in place there. Uh, we know that we'll be back, and we'll be back better. Uh, folks can keep that on Lamar if they want, but we'll be able to get some more weapons around him, shore up the defense, and we'll be in a Super Bowl. And that's a big jump. We tell you, is Lamar Odom, Lamar Odom, is Lamar Jackson the best dual-threat quarterback in the, to ever play in the game? Yeah, I, I know you love your man Cam, and we love him too because he's an Under Armour athlete and he comes here to work out and throw balls every now and again. But what Lamar Lamar has been able to do uh, to me just eclipses everything that everyone else has done. He does. I'm just saying he, he's better. Like he is better. He is better than Cam has ever been. Oh my goodness! On that note, Mr. Mayor, we love you down here, man. You keep that nonsense up there, the AFC North nonsense up there. But now keep doing what you're doing. You are, uh, I, I take a great deal of pride in your leadership, man. Keep rocking on. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast, man. Thank you, brother. Peace. All right, be easy.